0: I remember sitting in the senior partner's office. He hadn't been there during my first interview. After I accepted and came back home for the holidays, they wanted me to come in and see Bill Sanders. And I sat in this big corner office with him for a couple of hours, and he was just talking to me about what they do, how they do it, finding out about me. And at the end, he said, if anybody gives you any trouble about being Black, you let me know, and they're fired. I said, well, thanks, boss, but I've been Black a long time. I think I can handle it.
1: In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other.
2: Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt sized company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America.
1: Hi. I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Sly James. Sly served two terms as the mayor of Kansas City, Missouri, from 2011 to 2019. Before holding office, Sly practiced as a trial attorney with trial, litigation, and mediation experience as both a defense and plaintiff attorney, with over 70 cases tried to juries and over 800 mediations. He was the first African-American associate and partner in the Blackwell, Sanders, Matheny, Weary, and Lombardi law firm. And prior to that, he served in the United States Marine Corps. He is also the author of two books. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Sly.
2: Sly, I'd like to welcome you to the corporate couch today. Thanks, Jeff. It's good to be here, man. So this is our well, second time we've seen each other. Uh, we had coffee at the uh, Roastery Factory Cafe, and I was very a little intimidated that uh, you know that you were going to be really well dressed and have a bow tie on. So I I did put on a sport coat, but I, I was glad you came in some very nice. Uh, kind of like uh warm a- athletic leisure athlete, you know, whatever that genre is called. So, uh,
0: Well, you know, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I stopped wearing that uniform. When I left the mayor's office, I stopped wearing that
2: uniform too. I I like it though. <laughs> you had a, you had a brand for sure. Uh, so we'll, t- we'll talk about that, but I, no, I'm very honored, uh, that you're, you know, uh, that you're sitting on the corporate couch with me today. Just, you, you have some unbelievably great accomplishments and, you know thank you for serving our country and there's just so many great things to talk about
0: kind of you to say thank you very much
2: so let's uh, start with uh, just maybe a little fun question uh you're obviously you know people know you because you were a public figure for eight years and have done a lot of things but like people that even know you fairly well what's the the big surprise for them besides i heard you like oysters
0: Well, I I don't know if there are any big surprises. I'm pretty much a blunt instrument and open book type person. But, you know, I think that the one thing that people may not recognize is that I grew up in the inner city of Kansas City, and that experience uh, provided me with the opportunity to be empathetic about a lot of different issues that affect a lot of different people. But the one thing that I think people are always surprised about is they find out that I was actually in a band and playing music back in high school and open for Jefferson airplane. I was, Oh, wow, that's pretty cool. We'd have a conversation. But other than that, I'm pretty much a standard guy. There's nothing really shocking here.
2: I love that. And uh, just for all you Gen X millennials, uh, Jefferson Airplane became Jefferson Starship, and I'm, you probably have to look up Starship, but I know you're very fluent in using Wikipedia. So, but it was a, one of the most popular bands in the mid to late '60s into the into the '70s, especially when they were Jefferson Airplane, based in uh, San Francisco. They'd uh, very nice. What what instrument did you play, or probably still play? I bet. I I did not
0: play. I was the lead singer. I've been learning to play bass for the last three years. Uh, And I say learning because I sure as heck haven't learned it. Uh, But, uh, you know, I actually even got in about 15, 20 minutes of practice this morning between uh, Zoom meetings. But uh, I always wanted to play bass because that's kind of the backbone of any music. Sure. Uh, Unsung, but
2: absolutely vital. OK, this might be a first time reveal for you, but OK, you're you have to you have to go on stage and sing a, a cover song from your 60s, 70s rock band days. What's that song going to be for you?
0: It's probably going to be Little Wing by Jimi
2: Hendrix. Oh, OK. Wow. Yeah. Oh, Jimmy,
0: Yeah, what? we did a lot of Jimmy back then, a lot of. We did a lot of Taj Mahal, Jimi Hendrix, some airplane, a lot of different stuff, and a few things we wrote.
2: Nice, nice. Yeah, I I love it, love it. Um, yeah. So uh, growing up in Kansas City, what, what what was fun for you growing up? What you what you loved doing?
0: Um, I liked school a lot. I was very much into school. Um, you know that was my thing. Um, and. And I love playing ball. Uh, we had a CYO, Catholic Youth Organization, baseball team that I played on. I remember that we played so few games that when we had a rain out, it was like a depression. It was like Kansas City after after the field goal was missed in the playoffs years ago. And everybody just went into a deep depression for a month. So yes. that's kind of how it was then. But I, I love playing ball. Uh, we were always out in the street. Uh, riding bikes and doing stuff and uh, just having a blast, man. We were typical kids.
2: What position did you play in baseball?
0: First base and a right
2: field. Nice.
0: Yeah, I couldn't stick very well when they started throwing curves at me, that was probably the end of my baseball career. Yeah,
2: the de- demise of many of us in baseball.
0: <laughs> yeah. If you can hit the curve, if you're a left-handed pitcher or can hit the curve, you might have a future.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah. It's surprising when you go back because we're, uh, you know, we're in the same age uh, bracket basically. And uh, like you, the amount of little league games, at least, I played was, you know, per season were not that many, but you were like, oh my God, I I always played Little League and it seemed like a lot, you know, but it really wasn't that many games. It's like, you know, freshman football, you play six games. You know, you were thinking, right. Well,
0: the the contrast was stark when we had our, our son, Kyle, who turned out to be a pretty good baseball player, and he was playing travel baseball. And I remember one summer, a couple of summers before he finally hung up, he played 110 games in the course of a summer. Yeah. And they were, you know, we were in Chicago for a week playing two, three games a day, that type of thing. It was kind of onerous at the time. You know, we were both working, but uh, it was fun. We loved doing it. I remember in the Chicago thing, my wife was, uh, had our daughter in St. Louis for a horse show. And uh, we were in, and my son and I were in Chicago for baseball. And then when my daughter and wife came, we had three motel rooms and they always put you in these motels in strip mall type areas. And guess what the favorite restaurant of all the kids was for, uh, uh, on the teams that stayed
2: there, Olive Garden or Applebee's Nah, Hooters. (laughs) that's funny
0: i'm not sure if it was their favorite or coach's favorite but we always went there a lot
2: oh my god that's funny my my niece from wichita years ago she's 22 now she came for her birthday from wichita and we went she won she was like 12 she wanted to go to hooters like okay oh (laughs) gee yeah Uh, yeah
0: Uh, well i'll tell you it's uh, the wings weren't that good. I don't think they were selling wings as much as they were selling other things. But Not like the okay. peanut
2: on Maine, for sure. Not
0: uh, at all. Not at all.
2: Yeah. So any aspirations, size as a child, you know, like, hey, when I grow up, I want to be this. What was that for you? I knew
0: early on that I wanted to be a lawyer. I don't know why, but I did. I have, Actually, I should be uh, correct and say that I knew I either wanted to be a lawyer or a journalist. And after uh, a while, the journalist kind of went by the wayside and it was lawyer all the way. So I've known that I wanted to be a lawyer since before high school.
2: So was that a um, because you were studious, you read a lot of, you know, was it was it Abraham Lincoln or, you know, William Jennings Bryan? And like what what was the what was the person that kind of motivated you to become a lawyer if there was one?
0: I don't know, except I know that To Kill a Mockingbird had a major influence on me. Um, sure, but I also and and there were people who said you ought to be a lawyer. You you like to argue about things. It was one of those things where it just seemed to fit my skill set and my personality. I was the one in grade school and in high school that was acting as an intermediary between folks. I remember in college dealing w- uh, with the police on behalf of the fraternity that I was in. Uh, so I always wound up in those types of situations where I was acting as a lawyer in some respects, without portfolio, of course, it was just one of those things that I always liked. I found it to be some an avenue to bringing about change. I grew up in the 60s, like you did. And as you know, the 60s were tumultuous, somewhat like today, but not, not as political. I always thought that things could be different and change and, and then looking for ways to make change. I was never one to want to burn things down. I wanted to find solutions to problems, and I thought being a lawyer was a great way to do that. The constitutional issues, I thought, were meaty and interesting. And then I found out that really the only way you get to constitutional issues is through criminal law, and I do not have the personality for criminal law. I'm too empathetic. It would eat me up. It worked out because it gave me an opportunity to be of some value and service to get things done and working for people and still make a living.
2: Yeah, no, very nice. I mean, I would say you're in the minority of almost now 70 guests I've uh, interviewed, people didn't have, you know, I don't know, you know, they started in engineering, ended up in like computer science, you know, it was just, you know, uh, people didn't have, uh, most people didn't have an idea, especially as a child. I've even gotten the answers. I had no idea. I never even thought about it <laughs> and they're very successful today. So it's, you just see, you know, a lot of different, uh, you know, career journeys and life journeys. It's, it's kind of neat to watch. Um, so um, you, you go to Bishop uh, Hogan uh, local high school. And then uh, I know you went into the Marines. Did you go right into the Marines after high school or did you take a break or what uh, What was yeah, no? I was,
0: uh, I graduated in 69 and um The band was going strong, so continued to work and play with the band for a while. But I was 1A draftable, and I knew that I was going, so I just kept calling the draft board and asking what number they were on. And when it started getting close to my number, I started looking around for a way to deal with it. You know, uh, I went through that short mental thing about should I leave the country, and it was like, and go where and do what? No, that ain't going to work. So what's the next best option? So I literally went to three or four recruiting stations, Army, Navy, uh, Coast Guard, for sure, and talked to them and basically got the answer from the Coast Guard. There's no way that you're getting into the Coast Guard. And the Navy, uh, you know, I I realized soon that I wasn't going to be happy living on ships. Army said, yeah, you go straight to Vietnam. And uh, the Marine Corps said, if you enlist before, uh, you cut your chances going to Vietnam in half. So In light of the fact that my father was a Marine um, and we talked about that all the time and how tough it was and how how it's so watered down, according to him at that time, I decided to join the Marine Corps, never regretted it. So I joined the Marine Corps in 71, spent four years um, in California, Japan and the Philippines, came home, got discharged. Uh, Went to Rockhurst College in 71 and graduated there, uh, 75 or other, 75, and graduated in uh, midterm of
2: 80. Wow. So a couple of questions. Why did the Coast Guard turn you down?
0: Uh, They said, first of all, that they weren't taking people. And uh, there were a lot of people trying to get into the Coast Guard. Secondly, there was something about they weren't going to take people who were married. and I didn't understand that. Hmm. Uh, And I was married at the time. Um, but I didn't understand why they just said that. And, and come to think of it, if I didn't want to live on a ship in the Navy, I sure as hell wouldn't have been very good on a right. boat in the yeah. Coast Guard.
2: <laughs> yeah. But you not only joined the Marines, but you went into like the, the MPs, the military police. What was that? What, why was that decision?
0: Well, that wasn't a decision. They tell you what you're going to do. You don't get to choose. Okay. So at the end of boot camp. At the end of third week, 13 weeks of boot camp, they tell you what your MOS, Military Occupational Specialty is, and you've already taken a couple of tests, and they try to line up people according to aptitude, so they made me a military policeman, which was great, frankly, because uh, then I served in at Camp Pendleton for about eight to ten months. Um, I, I'm sorry, I served as ba- uh, company MP for the company I was in, and then... Uh, got transferred to base MP, which was literally being cops in a small city, Uh, Pendleton had about 120,000 people on the base. Um, And so we were the police on that base, and then got transferred to Japan, and which was boring as heck, except for driving big trucks on very narrow mountain roads in Japan, had one guy that we had Dodge D 100 trucks. If you've ever been to Japan, you know that some of the residential streets are about as wide as a couple of sidewalks. He got stuck between two houses in his truck, couldn't go forward, couldn't go oh. back. there's no sunroof. They had to come and tow him out backwards oh and God. did a little damage to the houses oh my God. Uh, and then got transferred to the Philippines for the last seven months of my tour and loved every minute of it, told them I'd re-enlist for four if they guarantee me two in the Philippines, and they said, uh, everybody wants that deal, no deal. So, I got out.
2: I think when we had coffee i told you i I do work with uh, Baron Lucas. He was almost thirty years as a, a marine he He was a colonel at the end of his tenure ran a fifteen hundred battalion uh fighter pilot squadron so i I emailed him yesterday, I said, "Hey, I'm talking to sly James uh, former marine, but he was in the m p s like any anything I should bring up, you know like where he goes. Uh, I, would go, I would tread lightly with MPs because <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> Sly, but he did give me this quote by Lieutenant General Chester Puller, the most decorated Marine in U.S. history. He said, yes. he said, take me to the brig. I want to see the real Marines. So you must have passed some toughness aptitude tests after uh, boot camp, I guess. Well,
0: it was an interesting experience, to say the least particularly in the Philippines, where it was a mixed unit, Army, Navy, shore patrol. And on New Year's Eve of 1970, we had the entire Seventh Fleet. Uh, we had several foreign fleets, English, Australian, a couple others that were in port. It was the most people I've seen crammed into a six block area in my entire life and they were all drunk. <laughs> and that was that was a very interesting night.
2: Oh, sure. <laughs> who was the cra I mean, no, no names, but who was the craziest person and what did they do that you arrested?
0: <laughs> we had an Aussie that was in town, uh, walking up and down the street with his pants down around his ankles. Uh, we stopped him once he pulled him up left. We saw him again, same thing and wound up taking him to the brig and just the transport of him to the brig was just hilarious. <laughs> uh, you know, it was, uh, I've never seen a guy so funny while they're drunk. Uh, the, the, the situation in, in Subic Bay during that time with Marcos and his Philippine constabulary was volatile, uh, to say the least. And, you know, it wasn't uncommon for the Philippine, Philippine constabulary to pull a gun and shoot somebody on the street. Uh, so we had those things to deal with. But uh, we had this favorite little restaurant that we went to and got to know the family and the girls in the family would take us to all the distant islands and we'd picnic there and explore. It was a blast. There were some characters on shore patrol, let me tell you, because the only reason you're in the Longapo City, Subic Bay, is to drink, party, and chase women. <laughs>
2: Yes, I. Uh, my only uh, reference to that comes from Officer and a Gentleman, Richard Gere's father, and him spent time at Suvik Bay or something like that. But anyhow, the Aussie uh, with his pants down in the streets uh, reminds me of some of my college friends, but uh, we'll, I won't <laughs> talk about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so it looks like you started Syracuse uh, at law school. Uh, so why yeah. Syracuse? And I know you ended up at University of uh, Minnesota, but tell, tell us about your law school journey.
0: Well, I was fortunate that I had a, a good friend who was the, uh, oh, the, the dean of students at Rockhurst who found a fellowship and applied on my behalf. And I got a fellowship to go to Syracuse. So between the fellowship and the GI Bill, I didn't have to work. Everything was paid for. I had enough money to pay for a place to live and a little bit of spending money on top of it. So that's why I went. I transferred because I found out that part of the fellowship requirements was that I take a class, at least one class every semester outside of the law school. And that became an interference with law school. So I decided to transfer to Minnesota. They gave me the same fellowship. It was closer to home and it was a higher rated school. So it worked out perfectly that way. Although both places were cold as hell. Yeah. I thought I was getting a break leaving Syracuse and going to Minneapolis. I was wrong. It was sure. worse
2: in Minneapolis. Right. There's, uh, uh, I think in Syracuse, there's uh, four weeks of summer. And in Minnesota, Minneapolis, there's three weeks.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and, the, and, and also in Minneapolis, unlike Syracuse, they had uh, mosquitoes that were the size of small dive bombers.
2: And that was before Minneapolis was all built out. Now everything's interconnected. You can go, you know, places, you know, where you don't even have to go outside in the winter. It's really, I know that's the infrastructure downtown, but.
0: Yeah, I really liked the city. It was a nice city. Very, very, very progressive, very highly educated. And the, the real payoff was the university. This is one of the things that I really wish Kansas City had. To have a university, have one of the largest universities in the country, in the middle of your city, That changes the atmosphere, a whole lot of dynamics that way. It brings younger people into the fold at every level. The unfortunate thing about Minneapolis was their prime minority group uh, that was underserved and underprivileged were Native Americans. And uh, the indigenous people, you know, we, we made a joke. I did an internship for the prosecutor's office, and we made a joke that we were always looking for a Native American in something other than an orange uniform, because that's generally when where we
2: saw them. So, so you uh, get out of uh, law school, not get out, graduate, obviously, um, and then how got you, out? <laughs> you got you made it, um, passed the bar, all that good stuff. And then, what was your first law firm out of college, and how did you get that job?
0: funny story at minnesota the dean of students there said i've signed you up for these interviews and i said i want to do criminal law and he says first of all you shouldn't do criminal law it would eat you up second of all you've got the highest gpa of any minority student in the school the law firms are always saying they'll hire people of color when they see qualified people you're qualified so i signed you up for all these interviews to see if they're telling us the truth So I did a bunch of interviews in Minnesota with some private firms and with the attorney general's office, had some offers from the attorney general's office that I turned down. Uh, Then went on some interviews in Chicago and St. Louis and had offers in St. Louis and then another one in Kansas City. So I came back to Kansas City because the firm here, Blackwell, Sanders, Matheny, Wary, and Lombardi, now Hush Blackwell, told me that they would let me do what I wanted to do, which was trial The other firm said, well, there's a six-month rotation for the first three years, you know, so you rotate through banking and construction. I I don't have any desire to know anything about banking or construction law. So going to Blackwell allowed me to do what I wanted to do early. Secondly, I was their first and only African-American hire of any sort in that firm, and it was home. So I started working there, and I started getting some really great experience from some super people.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, we, we started our professional career. I mean, you obviously served, um, in the Marines and, and went to law school and where I, uh, I did graduate college. I know people find that hard to believe. And then, uh, actually did uh, move to Kansas city from New York and, uh, did my MBA at university of Missouri, Kansas city at night. So I was working at the time. So what was it like for you to be a professional, in the, you know, the early eighties as an African-American. I mean, what, I mean, what, you know, and, you know, kind of compare and contrast, you know, that your beginning of the career to kind of, you know, maybe before you became mayor in terms of, what you know, what was the biggest change? What was the hard part for you at that time, if there was any?
0: I remember sitting in the senior partner's office. He hadn't been there during my first interview. And I accepted the job before I could interview with him, which was kind of unusual for them. So when after I accepted and came back home for the holidays, they wanted me to come in and see Bill Sanders. And I sat in this big corner office with him for a couple of hours, and he was just talking to me about what they do, how they do it, finding out about me. And at the end, he said, if anybody gives you any trouble about being Black, you let me know, and they're fired. I said, well, thanks, boss, but I've been Black a long time. I think I can handle it. (laughs) and 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 then he took me to every single person in that firm and introduced me personally. I felt that I had a responsibility to not screw it up. I did not want to be the reason why they said, hey, we're not going to do that again. We tried to hire somebody of color and it didn't work out, so we're not going to do it. So I wanted to make sure that I my work was exempted. So I had a pattern that I established because I had kids at home and a wife at home that I'd leave work 5.30 or 6, go home, eat dinner, wait until the kids went to sleep, then go back to the office and work into the early morning hours. And Bill Sanders was always there as well. So we got to know each other pretty well, which gave me some opportunities that other associates at my level weren't getting. Uh, I found it to be pretty much the same. Uh, I was There was a lot of times, for example, I was the only African-American male in my high school the entire four years I was there. So being the only African-American in a white environment was not new to me. Uh, And after I left high school and went home, I was there was no white folks in my neighborhood. So it was like every day I'm in two different worlds. I learned how to navigate those worlds because it was a matter of survival. And I tried to learn how to navigate those worlds without changing myself in the process of doing it. I wanted to be me wherever I was. And so I found it very interesting to work with uh, some friends to Dissuade them with some stereotypical beliefs uh, to see how they lived so that I could rid myself of some stereotypical beliefs. And simply found out that, frankly, if you spend the time to get to know people on an individual basis, color and that stuff doesn't really matter. It's where you don't have contact with people who are different where you start to hold on to these mistaken ideas and these prejudices that we all seem to carry around with us. So I didn't have any trouble there, but I did feel that I had a responsibility to those who might follow behind me not to mess up the road that they were going to have to walk on. So that's what I did. I worked my butt off. I did good work, good enough work for people to recognize it as such. And uh, things worked out well. And I became the first African-American partner on time. And three years later, I left. <laughs> so... <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, that's uh, Bill Sanders, uh, he he was almost, uh, I mean, you know, Branch Ricky to Jackie Robinson, not that the late 40s was a much different racial environment than it was in the, you know, mid 80s. But, I mean, it just, Bill obviously had the, you know, intelligence and leadership to say, you know, we need to do this. This is smart. Not that you needed his help, but he wanted to make sure that you felt welcome. And, you know, it, it, it was a, you know, probably a big deal in, in the day to be the first, you know, black associate at a prestigious law firm.
0: It was. And I did need his help because it's easy to recruit people. It's hard to retain them because in order to retain people in a foreign environment, the culture itself has to change. Changing cultures is very difficult, especially when it's entrenched and people are busy with other things and, and competitive. That helped quite a bit. But I carried my weight. Everybody knew I carried my weight. So it wasn't a matter of favoritism. It was a matter of quality and, and access. So it worked out pretty well for me. Uh, but it was not only me and a large firm. I was the only African-American in, there was one other in another firm in the top 10 firms. I mean, there was nobody. Right. That's why when I became president of the Bar Association, that's the first thing we worked on changing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I can imagine, I mean, two African American lawyers in the top 10 firms in Kansas City. Um, And I think just like Jackie Robinson, you, I mean, you're self motivated, you know, you're, you want to achieve, but I mean, it drove, it had to drive you a little bit harder because you wanted to set the standard, you you couldn't leave room for mistakes, you, you had to outwork people. So uh, I'm sure that Uh, was a motivator and you wanted to set the example, much like Jackie did.
0: Absolutely. And, And to do it in a way that did not make people angry or upset. I wasn't trying to cater to their feelings, but I didn't want to make a situation worse than it was. I wanted people when they met me and got to know me to leave thinking it was a good experience, not a bad one and not something that was forced on them, but something that was enjoyable. So I made friends. I was pretty good at making friends. The other thing that was very interesting was that, first of all, being the only one of two in the large firms, you wouldn't believe how many people called and wanted me to be on this committee or that board or whatever, you know, trying to diversify their environment. But the other thing that I thought was really interesting was that dealing with the courts, the courts saw even less diversity than the law firms did. One guy played a trick on me and said, hey, when you go up to this court, I was in a, a rural county, he said, when you go up to this court, you got to get real close to the bench because the judge is hard of hearing, so you almost have to lean over the bench to talk to him. And so I did that, Then the judge said, what the hell are you doing? Back up! And everybody in the court started laughing because they knew that I'd been pranked.
2: That so reminds me of the, the movie Brian's Song, uh, when uh, Brian Piccolo, uh, who who's played by James Caan, told... Uh, uh, was it Billy D. Williams that played? G- it Gail was. Sayers? Yeah. Gail Sayers told uh, Gail Sayers, you know, Halas could only hear out of his left ear. So he would be, and it was a scene in his office that he, Sayers keeps moving to his left side, talking to him every time Halas would turn around and he, and Halas goes- finally says, Sayers, I know you have the moves. You don't have to show them in my office.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I remember that movie. That was a classic movie. Yeah.
2: yeah. Real jerker. Oh yeah. God. So you become partner and then uh, what made you decide to leave after three years after becoming partner?
0: When I joined Blackwell Sanders, I was lawyer number 38. It was one of the top 10 firms in terms of size. When I left, there was 150 lawyers. The firm just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more impersonal. They brought in a new managing partner from another firm who totally changed the culture and the culture became competitive. Whereas with partnership, it was like okay, at the end of the year, everybody waits around to see the list to see what your bonus is. With the new change in management, it became individual meetings where you were invited to tell the managing partners group that was sitting there why you should make more money than somebody else. And I thought, I'm not going to sit there and crap on my friends and associates and say, I should make more money than Joe, because I did A, B, and C. And I didn't like that. So another partner, Nancy Kenner, uh, came and said, you know, I'm thinking about leaving. Would you want to leave as well? So we decided that we would do that. Uh, And I remember we were in our offices, which were side by side. And uh, John Phillips, who was one of the senior partners, came by and asked what we were doing. And he kind of sniffed out that we were plotting. And he went and told Bill Sanders. And Bill Sanders called us to his office and says, are you planning to leave? Because nobody had ever left Blackwell Sanders before volunteer. And so that was kind of a seismic shock. So we told him, yeah, yada, yada, yada. And he took it well and said, you know, there were times when I thought I would leave too and I'm still here. So he broke out the whiskey and we started drinking and talking and having fun. And one of our first major cases came from a referral inside Blackwell Sanders that got us started. So we wanted to go, we had been doing all defense work, representing people who have been sued, a lot of insurance companies, doctors who have been sued, professionals who have been sued. Frankly, I got tired of dealing with insurance companies. I felt, frankly, that I'd rather be on the side of the plaintiffs, and so would Nancy. So that's what we did. We started representing plaintiffs and worked together well for uh, 10 years and loved every minute of it.
2: Yeah. And then did you go off on your own after that? That you it disbanded Kenner James or?
0: No, I went and set up a shop downtown for a couple of reasons. My practice was changing and I was getting kind of tired of doing straight up litigation. So I hired a couple of associates, started doing mediations. But also, I was president of the bar association at that time. So Nancy and I are, are really tight. I'll be at dinner at her house next weekend, as a matter of fact. Uh, we're still best friends. But no, it was just time for a change. I've always thought that you need to reinvent yourself every 10 years or so, or you just get stale. And it was 10 years. I was at Blackwell 10 years. I was at Kenner James 10 years. I was at Sly James firm for nine years. I was mayor for eight years. So it's always been around that time that I started getting antsy and wanting to see a change. And it's been good for me because it's kept me sharp and it's kept me in a position to be a lifelong learner. If you do the same thing forever, you sometimes think that you don't need to learn anything new, but when you change what you're doing, you have to learn something new and different approaches and different modalities and different applications and all that stuff. So I credit changing career paths every 10 years or so with keeping me fresh and my mind active.
2: Yeah, no, I love it. What, what do you think that came from, Sly? Was that just an innate thing or did you know you have people in your family that you, know, you role modeled yourself after or-
0: I don't know where it came from to be quite honest. That was not the pattern in my family. My father worked his butt off doing essentially the same thing for as long as I've known him. He was good at it, he was successful at it, he made a lot of money doing it, but it was the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And I certainly don't fault him for that because it it certainly inured to my benefit, put food in our stomachs and clothes on our back. I just did not have that kind of straight line mentality I have a lot of things that I find very interesting. I'm easily distracted by the latest thing. I needed to find outlets for that. You can kind of tell when things are getting stale. I just found the changing paths every 10 years or so was more exciting than staying on the same path forever.
2: What made you want to run for the mayor of Kansas City? Because I believe you had really, I know you've probably served on committees and things like that, but you really had no political experience, I'll say.
0: None at all. No, on the, certainly not as a candidate or anything close to that. I, I knew people who were in office and worked with them on a project here, a project there. Uh, so I knew it wasn't brain surgery because I knew the people who were already doing it. But the thing that made me want to run was really a couple of things. Kansas City had always had this attitude that we were somehow less than other cities. Always wanted to be like St. Louis, always wanted to be like Denver or Minneapolis or some other place. I always thought that was nonsense. And it came from a lack of pride. And then during the Funkhauser years when absolutely nothing was happening and even worse than nothing, bad things, negative things were happening. I had a rule that if you're going to complain about stuff, then you either have to do something about it or stop complaining. So I decided to do something about it. I thought about running a little bit earlier, but my daughter was in high school at the time. And I didn't want to steal time from her high school experience by me being doing uh, running for office. So when she entered college, it was time for me uh, to give it a shot. And at that time, i had been in my firm for about 10 years and uh, said, you know, let's give this a try. And I figured if I lost, I continue to do what I'm doing. If I didn't lose then I change something. At the end of the day, it was the greatest decision I'd made. It was probably the best job of my professional career that I've had. I loved it. But I wanted to run because I thought that I had enough ego to think that I could actually make a difference in this city and how it felt about itself. And then I became the uh, uh, recipient of serendipitous circumstances, I like to say. We had a mayor that was not doing much. We had an economy that was stagnant because of the recession. He was vulnerable. As it turned out, once he was out of office and the economy started turning around, we had opportunities to change the game uh, with Google selecting us in KCK. And then uh, with our streetcar project and the Royals winning and all of the excitement that came about during that time frame made us all think a lot higher of Kansas City And now, and when I was mayor, one of the most gratifying things to hear was during the World Series and All-Star Games, et cetera, when people would come from other places around the country and the world and say, I had no idea talking about Kansas City. They expected cows and tumbleweeds and they found sophistication in art. And then to hear other cities at some point telling us how their constituents were saying, well, why can't we do what Kansas City did? That happened specifically with streetcar, no fare on streetcar. Oklahoma City residents, when they put a fare on streetcar there after their honeymoon period, the residents told the mayor they wanted to run it like Kansas City did, with no fare. And they didn't, and their ridership went down. It was nice to be on the pace setting side as opposed to the chase side. I took a lot of pride in in making sure that people knew that Kansas City was a place to be and doing things that they should be thinking about as well.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I remember when I came here, uh, I flew here, in September of 82. My only big city experience was New York City. So I mean, there's yeah. only one New York City, right. But I was just, I was, I finished my interview with AT&T at 811 Maine. remember when they were <laughs> headquartered there. And, you know, I kind of came out at five o'clock and I'm like, Hey, there's nobody around. Nothing. <laughs> I'm like, nothing. This is weird. You know, like, okay. I mean, I understand that, you know, New York has 10 million, you know, people and all that good stuff, but yeah, I mean, but it's such an undertaking. I mean, it's one thing to run for, like, you know, a Gladstone council person or whatever. Uh, did somebody approach you or you just say, OK, I'm going to go be mayor. And if that, you know, either way, what was the process after that once you decided?
0: Well, I spent a year, literally a year, setting up lunches, coffees, drinks with people and saying, what do you think we ought to be doing in Kansas City? What are your main issues? And listening to them. And that led me to put together an agenda that we call the four E's of employment, enforcement, education, and efficiency in in government, because those were the things that kept resonating. And we we just kept building on it. I do not suffer from imposter syndrome. Uh, You know, uh, there are very few times when I say, gee, I don't know if I'm good enough. That's not me. It's kind of like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it a shot. I win. Great. I lose. I lose, so I kind of went into it loose, knowing full well that I had a hill to climb. I was not the most well known. There was in the primary, there were three sitting city council people, the former mayor and a couple of people from outside, and me, and we were all competing. I found the competition to be fun, but I also found it to be very enlightening, but it allowed me to say what I thought, and it allowed me to speak my mind. Uh, without trying to curry favor or kiss anybody's butt in order to get a vote. I took the approach and the attitude of this is what I believe, this is what I think, this is what I think we can do. I don't mind if you think there's some adjustments that need to be made, but I'm ready to go forward. And our, our motto was go big or go home. And so we wanted to talk about doing the things that we thought Kansas City needed and finding ways to build the coalitions inside the city to get it done. So to me, it was just an extension of things that I've been doing, uh, which was leading and building collaborations and finding ways to bring people together to get things done. If you're standing in front of a jury trying to persuade them that your client's cause is just and right and that they should compensate them with big dollars for that, it's really not a whole lot different than politics. And the one thing I always learned is that if the jury doesn't believe you or don't think that you're authentic, they're not going to do what you want. And I took that same attitude and approach.
2: Yeah, so interesting. So you're kind of, uh, kind of informal uh, straw poll meeting with people for coffee, lunch, things like that. Were they named people like influencers or were they just, you know, random samples of people? Like what, what was your process there? It was a
0: cross-section. I had some influencers there because I knew that if I wanted to do this, I needed to find out if I could get the support of A, B, C, and D, Tom McDonald, and folks like that. But I also met with neighborhood groups. I met with teachers. You know, I met with anybody who wanted to talk that would take the time to do it. Because in order to put together a plan, you can't rely on just the one layer of folks. You've got to know if, if we do this, how does it affect Not just the people running the corporations, but the people trying to make their neighborhoods better. People who are driving to work every day to do whatever it is they do, or people who didn't have jobs or had poor living conditions, weren't making a lot of money. What's in it for them? So I tried to talk to as many different types of people as possible. And that came, frankly, from understanding how focus groups work. If you're going to do a focus group to find out how something's going to be received, you don't want just one segment of the population, you want a cross-sector, because then you're gonna be able to find out whether or not you're gonna have cross-segmental appeal. It's the same thing with politics. If you're gonna be the mayor of the city, you're gonna be the mayor for all people in the city, black, white, rich, poor, uh, white collar, blue collar, or no collar at all. So I wanted to meet with as many people as possible to find out what they thought. And we put together a compendium, frankly, of all those things. and made a plan based on what we were hearing and it worked and it served us very well for the eight years we were in office. We never had to change it.
2: I am not the most political person, so I I won't know a lot of, you know, uh, you know, details about uh, political people. But what I think happens is people see the results of polls and then don't become their authentic self. They kind of go where the wind is blowing. But it seems like you, you took people's you know, a a diverse group of people that you were going to serve and made it into an agenda that you were comfortable with that represented your values and principles. Is that, does that sound like what you did? Pretty much. And the
0: other thing too, when you talk about polls, I remember when we were working on the airport, which was a seven-year project, to be quite honest, 18 months before we were scheduled to go to vote, our poll was running at about 27% favorable. And in that 18 months, we changed that to a 72% positive vote. Polls only give you a snapshot of, of, a, of people's opinions based on the information that they're fed. So if you want the polls to change, give them additional information or different information. Show them why what they thought originally is wrong. And we had to overcome this baseline misunderstanding of how it's going to be paid for. People thought it was a tax issue. No taxes involved. Wouldn't it cost anybody anything unless you buy a ticket to fly out. And once we started getting that word across in the business uh, need for a new airport, uh, not just the community need for a new airport, people bought it. But polls are misleading. And polls are not necessarily as foolproof as they used to be because polls usually came across on landlines originally. Uh, and the and the time between switching from landlines to cell phones brought about some wrong results on polls. The polls in the last presidential election were off. Uh, those polls had a Republican landslide in the House and the Senate. Didn't happen because polls don't vote. People do. And if you get to the right people, and a lot of people that vote don't pay any attention to polls and never ask the questions on polls, but you go to the people. And I learned a long time ago that I didn't necessarily always have to rely on what the council said. If I wanted to get something done and the council wanted to go in a different direction, that's when I mobilized my constituents on the outside to help persuade the council because they have more power over them than I do. So it's it's really a matter of trying to do the right thing and finding a way to do it and to work with people to get things done. And if you keep the goal in mind and you, and you don't mind sharing credit with people or not getting any credit at all, you can get a hell of a lot done. But when your ego gets involved or when you start doing things so that you ensure your next election, then you start making mistakes and playing politics. I always thought of myself as a public servant, not a p- politician. Public servants serve the public by doing things that the public needs. Politicians serve themselves a lot by taking votes and doing things that they need to get reelected. I didn't want to be in the latter category.
2: Viewing your leadership while you were the mayor, so I could not vote for you. I'm in Overland Park, Kansas, so I can't vote for the mayor of Kansas City, uh, Missouri. But I just, you know, the things I noticed just watching you a- on TV and things like that, it's just you were a presence and a, and a leader. And, you know, uh, you know pol- politics aside, you know, there's you know, Clinton was kind of that presence, you know, like a leader, Ronald Reagan, right? I mean, it just showed, and what doesn't happen today, which is so sad, is people are for themselves or their party, and it's not being public servants, and you know that better than I do, but I just think it, it just has allowed, it's where the best and the brightest would want to be mayor of Kansas City or the president of the United States, it's i don't think it's that way anymore unfortunately but
0: it is unfortunate but one of the nice things is is that the local government is where things really come home to roost and where things have to work uh local government is very much accountable to the people in the locality that's not true of congress people and senators you don't see them they're not shopping in the grocery store you can't stop them in the aisle and tell them about a sewer problem which happened to me all the time More of- I remember one lady came up to me and kind of looked at me strange and said, mayor. I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, you do your own shopping. I said, I do my own eating. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I, somebody's got to, uh, but yeah. And then we had a conversation about her neighborhood and something that was going on in her neighborhood that lasted 20 minutes. Yeah. That's what happens on the local level. You have to be accountable to the people you're serving. That conversation wouldn't have happened with a congressperson or a senator. They wouldn't have been there in the first place. The local level is where we actually can have an impact on people's lives day to day. All the problems that the state and the federal government create come down to the local level. We have to find solutions to it. If they decide that they don't like Obamacare or, or the Affordable Care Act, that doesn't mean that we get to stop treating people, which is why we have three health levies in order to treat people who can't afford it. When all these things happen on the state and federal level, they're implemented locally and they affect people. And we have to deal with that. That makes you accountable. And that should make you understand the value of being a servant as opposed to being a politician. A politician will take the position that is most beneficial to their long-term career. And, they, and I don't mean that's across the board. I don't mean to be totally negative about politicians because a lot of people in politics do a lot of good things. The idea of politics anymore is my party versus your party. I'm not going to talk to you if you don't like my idea. We can't figure out where to go to lunch together, let alone how to put together a budget or how to stop problems that are occurring or what facts are, what the truth is. On the local level, you can't get away with that. Besides that, the problems and the issues that we deal with are not political. Nobody cares whether it's a Republican or a Democrat trimming trees or laying pavement repairing sidewalks or water infrastructure or building a new hotel. Nobody cares about that. They want to see the job done and the services delivered.
2: This is going to be a Mike Wallace type question. So be careful on this slide. I'm just (laughs) warning you. Um, All right. Were you wearing your bow tie in the grocery store when that woman approached you? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it was a brand you carried with you or you were coming home from the city hall and stopped Uh, in the grocery store.
0: I, yeah, absolutely. I can tell you that after leaving office and not being in my bow tie very often, people would come and say, you look familiar. I can't, I just can't place you. <laughs> and, and then I'd say, I tell them first, I was Denzel Washington, which they never buy. Um, <laughs> and then I tell them who I was. And they say, I didn't recognize you without your bow tie. There
2: you go.
0: I learned that in media training with the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And, and that was one of the things they said is they put up a picture of a woman in a pantsuit. And they said, who is this? And everybody said Hillary Clinton. They put up a picture of somebody else and they said, who is that? They knew who it was from what they were wearing. They said, if you have been identified with a particular style of dress, keep wearing it. Treat it like a uniform that you wear every day. It allows you to break the initial ice with people. And they were right.
2: Always admired uh, the way you dress. I was best dressed in senior year in high school. So I, I It was a very apathetic class, so i I think I got three votes in one <laughs> so I, the question too is so you you were you know you've been in the legal legal firm's partners starting your own law firm. what was the biggest surprise coming you know starting when you became mayor and like oh wow, I didn't know about this was it was there a, a this moment for you
0: uh there were several even before I was sworn in. I got dragged into things that should have been handled by the mayor, but he was not doing. Uh, Google was ready to pull the plug because they didn't get any response from him. So they asked me to meet with Google and talk to them, et cetera. And so I did. That was the day after the election. And I was like, dude, I was planning to take a nap and get my law office squared away. And you already got me working. And so we did that. And then shortly thereafter, I met with a business that was going to move Across state lines to try and convince them not to. And that stuff just kept coming. So I think the thing that surprised me the most was how really complicated and interconnected things are in this city. You look at it and you think, okay, I see what's out there. That's like the tip of the iceberg. Uh, the rest of the stuff is all sub Rosa. I didn't know anything about underground infrastructure or why the water bills were so high or what how you put together a streetcar or what the real price of a building a hotel was, or any of that stuff. I had to learn it on the go. But I had good people around who did know. And when you don't know what you're doing, bring in the experts and let them talk to you about what what it is and learn from it and then make the adjustments as you go. So I think the big surprise was I underestimated the complicated aspects of this city and what the size of the city relative to the population meant in terms of things we could and could not do we're one of the largest landmass cities in the country. You can fit seven San Francisco's inside the boundaries of Kansas City, Missouri, but we have one fourth of the population of San Francisco. And that means we lack density, but we so spread out, we have much more infrastructure. Infrastructure is paid for with tax dollars. So you got fewer people paying for more infrastructure. That's makes things hard and it makes you find a way to deal with your budget. It forces you to be more innovative because you have to get the same stuff done. And every year it gets more expensive and, and the demand for higher quality is there. So you have to be innovative about how you did it. And so we, we learned how to be innovative in local government and develop, developed a pretty good reputation for innovation in terms of local government. One of our efficiency points was to push, push a data-driven uh, decision-making process. So we started KC Stat. Uh, which worked very well, and Bloomberg Foundation, uh, Bloomberg Associates in New York, caught wind of it, came down to work with us for a year and a half, and started exporting it to different places around the country
2: and the world. Yeah, you you seem to have a lot of tech initiatives, you know, with Google Fiber, and you're talking about the KC Stat and working with Bloomberg. What I mean, is that part of your background and DNA?
0: No, it's not. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty tech stupid, but I am. But I did know... (laughs) I did know enough to listen to the people in the chamber and otherwise, and they were trying to make Kansas city the most entrepreneurial city in the country. And a lot of the entrepreneurism was in the tech side. So Google pushed that and that brought in a lot more tech. So then as as part of Google, we started getting approached by a lot of third party providers, big engineering and technology companies to beta their projects here in Kansas city. So we became the biggest and the first, smart and connected city in the in the north america in north america as a result of streetcar and google who knew that those two things would connect like that but they did Um, so then when you have that as a selling point then you learn about it and you start finding ways to emphasize it and to grow it and that's that's really what it was all about also my book is a passion for purpose building cities for our children And we wanted to know where are our young people going now and why they needed tech, they were involved in tech, they needed free, they needed transportation, they needed housing that they could afford. And so we started building things around that so that we could draw in those young entrepreneurs from around the country, bring their families here and build this city.
2: Yeah, I will say, uh, unlike many of my uh, neighbors uh, neighbors meaning anybody in Johnson County people like go oh downtown is so far. Well, my wife Robin and I we we go down there a lot. We love the streetcar. We do it. Yeah, we do it a lot, especially during concerts. Uh, here's a little tip: you park farther away from T-Mobile Center, and then you take the streetcar to your car, and it's really a good tip for concert goers. Absolutely, <laughs> I do it i do it. Yeah, no, we, we take the streetcar all the time. So you've had so many accomplishments as a mayor. Is Do you have a favorite one? I have a lot of favorites. I think the most important one, though, is the
0: turn-the-page reading program. That's the most important because it was something that benefits children. When you think about benefiting children, what you're really saying is it's a way of guaranteeing your future. When I was went to my first U.S. Conference of Mayors meeting in Baltimore in June of 2011, I met Ralph Smith, who was with the Annie Casey Foundation, who was telling, going around talking to mayors, telling them about the importance of third grade reading, what it meant in terms of people's lives from that point forward. And so I got very interested in that. With his help, he educated me about it. I came back. I got my staff to get statistics and data from the various school districts that were willing to give it up. And we found out that KCPS had 18% third graders reading proficient. 18%, 18%, that means 81% weren't. And then when you look at that statistic and then you look at the graduation rates and you look at the prison rates and you look at poverty rates, gee, wouldn't you know, they're all connected somehow. So we started with the program and it went very well, still going right now, as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, there's this bookstore in the airport called Third, or Return to Page. Um, And so we got that started. And I think that's been the most impactful and the most beneficial. We moved on from there in the last stage and tried to get a tax passed in order to establish universal high quality pre-K for every child, uh, every four-year-old in the city. And it didn't pass. But the reason that we did that was because we learned that if we're only getting there at third grade, we're still getting there too late. Because if you have kids that are 30 million words behind at the age of three, two years behind when they enter kindergarten at the age of five, trying to change them between kindergarten and third grade is a hell of a lot tougher than making sure that they're not 30 million words behind at the age of three and that they're not two years behind at kindergarten. Then you got something more you can work with. So we tried to get that done and we weren't able to get it done. And I'm still somewhat chagrined. Uh, And I, I sometimes think, I wonder what would have happened if COVID had come before our vote and people then had to experience what it was like to have children who were out of school, who needed childcare, who needed daycare, who needed high quality early learning, and it wasn't available. If we had to vote after that, would it have been different? I think it may have been better. I don't know if it would have been enough, but it would have been better. Right. Now, all of a sudden, you can't go too many places without having a conversation without child care and early childhood education. but. Typical of us Americans, we always want to treat the disease as opposed to eliminate the causes of the disease.
2: One of my uh, podcast guests, uh, Kristen Raguson, uh, she wrote the book, The End of Scarcity, and she's a financial advisor. She's been with uh, Merrill Lynch for 27 years, which became Bank of America. Now she's at Raymond James, but it's a fantastic book. I'm going to send you the link to it but Thank she you. she came to Kansas City cuz there's a UMKC professor that's very astute on on money and the history of money and there was some conference here anyhow we didn't get a chance to meet face to face cuz we've only met a couple times via Zoom and she has traveled everywhere like uh, you know middle east uh, you know europe i mean very always on a plane and she said Kansas City is the nicest airport she's ever been in.
0: Very glad to hear that because that's exactly what we wanted. It's an airport that the city deserves.
2: Hundred uh, percent. It, yeah, it's, it, it, it's a it it is. It's you don't feel like you're in Kansas City. <laughs> you know, right, having yeah. lived here forty plus years, you know, it was, it's nice
0: to get out of the Soviet era bunkers that were the old that was <laughs> the old airport.
2: Is there accomplishment when you were mayor that maybe? hasn't seen its major impact yet because it's a long game? Well, turn the
0: page. I think it's one of those. But when I think about those things, I'm thinking about things that have a direct impact on people. And at one point we had KC Nova, Kansas City, No, viol- uh, no, uh, Kansas City, no Violence Alliance that showed good promise. And guess what? Politics got in the way and it went away. But during the time that We had established and and oiled up uh, NOVA. We had 89 murders in the year, and then shortly thereafter it went away and our murder rates had just gone up, up and up. We had a program called Teens in Transition, TNT, where we would get referrals of kids from high school counselors or police officers or church members that they thought they were headed in the wrong direction, hanging out with the wrong people. We'd get them into the program pay a minimum wage, have them come to arts tech, and they would work with other kids like that. I got to see them when they came in and they were sullen and angry and didn't want to be there, and they didn't want to deal with the cops. And then I got to see them at graduation when they were hugging the cops and talking and laughing and being friends with everybody and staying in touch. We were able to change kids' lives, and we had data that showed that 68% of the kids that went through that program had no negative contacts with police in three to five years thereafter. Before that, they were having contacts all the time. So we changed people's lives. Those are the things that matter. We can build buildings all the time. We can always have good airports and nice hotels and good places to eat. But if we don't take care of our kids better than what we're doing, then we're just going to have the same problems over and over. We're still going to have a population that's divided, that's underemployed, and under And that scares me from the standpoint of the changes in this society are so rapid, particularly in the technological phases, that if we aren't doing more to prepare our kids for those changes, we're going to fall behind as a country. Not only that, we're top heavy. There's more older people over 60 than there are young people under 21. So we're top heavy. So we have fewer people to support more people who are not going to be as productive as a age I'm always looking for ways that we can solve short-term problems, do things on the intermediate side so that we are continuing to work on, make the tweaks that are necessary, with a view towards long-term sustainability of the solution. But when we have chronic problems, we don't have sustainable solutions because a lot of those solutions are imposed through a political structure that changes every four or eight years. And every time somebody in leadership changes, they want to do their ideas not the old ideas. They're never going to give credit to the people that came before them that got some things done. They're going to sweep them out and do something new. And so we bounce from one thing to the other without ever solving the problems that have been with us for decades and lifetimes.
2: Yeah. And the and the mayor of Kansas City it is a two-term limit. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. So you, uh, I didn't mention that when you ran for re-election, you had 87% of the vote, which is a uh, Pretty damn good, Sly. <laughs> I was happy. <laughs> but uh, so you, so you, uh, twenty nineteen, you uh, leave office, um, yeah. and then you start uh, Wickham James. Tell tell us what that company does, and I know uh, you're partnering with your uh, longtime chief of staff, Joni Wickham. So tell us about that.
0: Joni is not just my former chief of staff and partner; she's my friend. She's my very, very good best friend. A smart as a whip, very dynamic woman. Our skill sets and personalities mesh quite well. She is a lot of things I'm not, not a lot of things she's not. And we get along and make it a whole. But what we do is we do a lot of consulting on various things. Uh, we do a lot of public policy consulting, worked on the Medicaid expansion. We're working on a paid leave uh, initiative uh, now, Uh, We have a program at Harvard called PMI, which is Project on Municipal Innovation, where we work with chiefs of staff from around the country to talk about innovations in municipal government, meet with them twice a year at Harvard, uh, meet with them four times a year uh, virtually, uh, and gather information and data about how to get more things done on the local municipal level, innovatively recognizing that the funding is always gonna be tight. We work on public relations for nonprofits, I worked with the Kaufman Foundation on, a, on an organization called Mayor's Council for a while uh, until they disbanded that under new leadership, where we went to different cities and talked to other mayors and their staffs about ways that we could help them enhance their entrepreneurial base and, and innovation in their city. Joni worked with an outfit called She Should Run, which was designed to help women get into politics. Uh, we did some child care work. She's on the board of Unchild Care Organization. I'm on the board of uh, Girls Preparatory Academy, uh, which is the first all-girls charter school, uh, mostly catering to the underserved, a lot of African-Americans, Latinos, in eastern side of Kansas City with Christine Kemper as the founder there. We do a lot of public relations work. We've done a little bit of political consulting. Uh, we're putting together the U.S. Conference of Mayors Conference here in Kansas City in June of 2024, We're going to do some statewide stuff. I worked with St. Louis on helping them mediate uh, the distribution of their NFL settlement. I do mediations as well. We have a very varied and interesting practice. Enjoy it so far, but we're reaching a point where there's just the two of us by choice. And we're saying, okay, if we take on much more work, how are we going to handle it? And trying to figure out that dynamic of taking on more work is interesting with only the two of us and only so many hours in the day. But we'll figure it out as we go forward. It's a happy problem to have.
2: I have no doubt you'll figure it out, Sly. You're not, <laughs> things are always happening and, I, and always for the good of things. So I, I love that you do that. Um, I, I always like to help two groups of people on this podcast. One, I am very empathetic towards the recent college graduate now going to begin their professional career journey post-college, um, What advice do you have for them uh, as they embark on getting their first job and then their career journey as a whole?
0: Learn how to communicate with people face-to-face. Do not rely on emails. Do not rely on text. Learn how to communicate face-to-face because that's where the real magic happens and that's where you're going to get your best leg up. Second, keep your pride out of it to some extent. Get your foot in the door Learn everything that you can. And after you've exhausted that, if the need, if it requires a move, make it, make sure that you find a way to be in a situation that you can learn and grow in an organization. Rely on yourself. Don't fall victim to imposter syndrome. If you're a woman, don't let somebody talk you out of doing something because you're female. If you're black, don't let somebody talk you out of it there. If you're a male, it's the same thing. But be bold in what you're doing and have faith in yourself and recognize that if you made it successfully through college and you've taken whatever exams you have to take or done whatever you have to do to be an entry level person, you're going to be fine. So why worry about failure? Just worry about success.
2: Yeah, I love that. That's I love the face to face, too. I, I don't think I've heard that of all the guests I asked because it is so, you know, especially with COVID, that group of uh students and young people have went through learning via you know fa- as via zoom and not face to face i think it impacted them i taught a class last uh, spring semester at university of kansas in the business school and you can just tell a little bit they're you know reticent about you know being face to face for lack of a better word if
0: you have a an attitude that before somebody calls you on the phone they need to text you first <laughs> then you're headed down the wrong path really? okay
2: yeah don't the
0: communication
2: exactly uh i even say to uh, my adult friends i like sometimes i just pick up the fo- phone and call people and i'll say no one calls anyone anymore so i decided to call you
0: <laughs> even worse no one writes anybody anymore when's the last time you got a
2: handwritten card that that is true that is true i i still send them out though i'm old school yeah so. amen um, So your leadership is unbelievable. And I've I've learned a lot just talking to you for the last hour plus here. But the second group I like to help, same as they evolve in their career journey as professionals in the workplace, you know, you start at your first job at a college. Usually you don't have any people reporting to you, but now you're on the org chart and responsible for a team of people. What advice would you have them as they begin their leadership journey?
0: First of all, be a servant leader. Don't be an egotistical leader. Second, always, always, always give public credit to the people that work for you that do the actual job. Don't, because a lot of times a leader gets to stand at the podium and take credit for the project, the job well done or whatever, but they didn't do the real work. They may have organized it, they may have led it, but when it came time for somebody to get out on the street and get their shoe leather worn out by doing stuff, those people need to be recognized. If you recognize the people for the job that they do to support the mission, they will stick with you and they will support your missions from hell or high water. Sometimes you can't give a raise, but you can always give a pat on the back. And a lot of times, a pat on the back is more valuable to people than a raise. Always recognize the people that work for you and allow them to have a voice in what's going on. A lot of times, if you let the people who are actually doing the job talk about the job and how it can be done, you can find a way to do it better than it's being done instead of just doing things because that's the way we've always done it. Let the people who, who you're responsible for have an opportunity to interact with you on a meaningful basis to talk about what they're doing and how it can be done better. And they will follow you around because they know that you respect them and if you respect them, you're much more likely to get respect from them.
2: Yeah, that's a great, great advice. I love that. Uh, Sly, you've been incredible. I, I'm honored again to have you on the, uh, the corporate couch. And I could have talked another hour. We didn't even get to your books. Uh, we, I mean, we talked about your first one, A Passion for Purpose, but uh, we didn't get to talk about the opportunity agenda. But so we'll have to save a, uh, for our next uh, conversation on the corporate couch. But thank you so much for coming on today.
0: Jeff, it's been great talking to you and I enjoy it very much and I appreciate what you're doing uh, because you're spreading knowledge, man. Anytime you're spreading knowledge, you're doing something good for people.
2: Thank you, Sly. Have a great rest of the day. You too. Joe, I can't tell you how honored I am to have the former mayor of Kansas City and probably one of the best mayors in Kansas City history, Mm -hmm. um, Sly James as a guest. I mean, just there's so many great things to talk about with him um i'm going to start that he, his band where he was the lead singer opened for jefferson airplane i mean opened great? jefferson airplane was one of the top rock bands of that era they then became jefferson starship got watered down a little bit but anyhow <laughs> um and you know he was the first black associate at uh, one of the top 10 law firms in Kansas City became the first black partner of that law firm. You know, he's almost like the Jackie Robinson of Kansas City law firms. And you know, he's just a lifelong learner. So he you know, he said, I make a change every eight to 10 years, I have to go on to something else. Mm -hmm. It's not like he got bored, but he just wanted another challenge. And the most unbelievable thing for me, And I know you're a little more politically astute than I am, but he became mayor of Kansas City, which is like the, you know, 31st largest city in the US, and with no political experience as a candidate. And he basically said, Look, Kansas City is in a rut. The leadership is not good. And either if I'm complaining about it, I either have to do something or not complain. And so. And and the other thing about him to, to him to take this journey, he decided to wait. This is how he is he, as a family person. He he his one of his daughters, maybe his youngest daughter was going to be a senior in high school. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to take time away from her. So he, he delayed it till she got out of high school and then started with these. He basically did a listening tour of Kansas City for a year with influencers or just people off the streets. And he wins the election, you know, and he know nothing Mm -hmm. about politics, for the most part, I I just, to me, it's mind boggling. He's not a tech person, but he did all these tech initiatives. Um, You know, Casey stats, Google, bringing Google fiber here, the smart city tech deployment that he did. He was responsible for the streetcar which is a model for other cities of our size you know the, the airport was the eight-year plan to get that all done i mean it it, it finally was completed finally after his you know two-year term but i mean it's just incredible and that you just have to be so good at leadership to make the changes he made and he was just he's a man of uh, a person of he knows no Color or you know demographic or sociographic—it you just they're it's learning about people and listening to people and I just I'm amazed and again I just so honored to have him. But Joe, what did you take away from this?
1: This was without a doubt one of my favorite interviews that we've that we've ever done, and it tells you the kind of caliber of interviews that you can come to expect when you visit the corporate couch. I mean, we've had. Uh, an an award-winning morning disc jockey. We've had um, a brigadier general on. We've had CEOs and CIOs. We've had entrepreneurs. And now we get the mayor of Kansas City or the former mayor of Kansas City. Um, This is the kind of caliber of interviewees that you can expect when you visit the corporate couch. That's... One of the things I'm just amazed about is how this project has progressed like that. Sly, I tell you, he's about the least political politician I think I've ever seen, uh, because none of the stuff that he did had anything in the world to do with politics. It all had to do with just making Kansas City a better place to be. That's what he wanted to do. And even the idea of waiting until his daughter got out of high school, you know, the, that wasn't a political thing to do. That that doesn't even make sense for politicians to do those kinds of things, but that's what he did. And one of the things that I was really impressed about, of course, as a computer person myself, is that he insisted that all of his decisions be data-based decisions or data-driven decisions, which is so not like what a politician would do. A politician usually goes into a job because he wants to do X, he wants to do these things, Sly went into the job saying, I want to do what's right, and I'm going to let the data tell me what is the right thing to do. And he even admitted, I'm tech stupid. That was his quote that I wrote down. I'm pretty tech stupid. But I know that these kind of things, the Google Initiative and, and the other things, the, the data is driving the fact that this is the thing that needs to be done for Kansas City. So it was an amazing, amazing interview. And I'm just overjoyed to be a part of it.
2: The other crazy part, when he made the uh, comparison with San Francisco, where uh, San Francisco is uh, seven, Mm -hmm. seven San Francisco's in terms of landmass can fit into Kansas city landmass, but we're 25% of the population of San Francisco. Yeah. Kansas City is Kansas a city strange,
1: is it's a strange city geographically it because spread out it is so it, spread out.
2: Yeah. He, he said that was one of the biggest things he had to learn. It's like, oh man, I mean, he knew nothing about a lot of things, but it was like, yeah, I mean, it's different if you're, you know, doing Gladstone um, versus, you know, downtown Kansas City, it just it, there's different challenges, you know, like San Francisco or even New York City, if you're the mayor there, it's a city. Mm -hmm. It's a big city in a small area, Mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah, just phenomenal. What leadership advice based on the great Sly James episode would you want to impart on our listeners today, Joe? We're going to go
1: from Sly James to um, that great philosopher named Calvin, who one time told his pet tiger, Hobbes, he said, they say that the world is a stage, but obviously the play is unrehearsed. And everybody is ad living his lines.
2: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.